0: On today's More Than a Test, we invite Dr. Molly Ness to the table. If you have heard the name Molly Ness, you probably read one of her many books about education and teaching and literacy. You probably even have her new book about read-alouds and the importance of read-alouds kindergarten through 8th grade. Um, but today she's going to tell us about how she's a teacher's teacher and how she makes sure everything she does is accessible to teachers and is meaningful to students and can be changed and implemented in the classroom. So welcome with me, Molly Ness. Molly, thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Um, It's actually really great timing because last week I hosted Peter Brown, who is the author of many fabulous children's books uh, that are used as read alouds across the country. And you have a new book out about read alouds. Uh, So I felt like this really connected well. Tell us a little bit about your book. Um, Yes, it's a solution tree book
1: called Read Alouds for All Learners, Um, and the idea behind it is that as these conversations about the science of reading have come into everyday conversations, so major media outlets, social media, documentaries, podcasts, etc. There's been so much focus on the constrained skills of word recognition. So if you look at the Scarborough Reading Rope, there's been so many conversations about decoding and word identification, but we can't overlook the importance of those unconstrained skills of language comprehension. And so I wrote this to really draw awareness to the fact that every teacher pre-K through 8, and I am Intentionally, I did not uh, write about high school, not because there's no place um, for read-alouds in high school, but just because that's not where my teaching experience falls. Um, but knowing that all teachers, uh, pre-K through 8, re- regardless of what content area, they have the ability to uh, facilitate and enhance and um, and build and promote kids' language comprehension through read-alouds, through building vocabulary, through uh, background knowledge, and that is equally
0: as important in these conversations about the science of reading. I'm so glad you said this. This is one of my first questions, as I was going to say, like, not really the in-vogue topic right now to be talking about read-alouds, because all we seem to be talking about is phonics and teaching those skills. And so I'm curious, tell us a little bit more about why this message matters so much, and what, what are read-alouds doing that is so important, even though it seems like all we're talking about is phonics right now. Sure, and I actually, it sort of keeps me up at night as well, as,
1: um, because when we look at sort of the measures of what we are using to, um, to, to, to analyze student success, we're looking at things like NAEP. And NAEP, these tests at fourth and eighth grade and 12th grade, are not just phonics. They're not just word identification. Sure, you have to have the ability to lift the words off the page to read the passages. But if you look at the passages, they're really passages of background knowledge and vocabulary and language comprehension. So um, I wrote this to show that not only are those skills and components essential, um, but we all have the capability of building language comprehension as we do something as sort of tried but true and familiar as read-alouds. I also wrote it to to show that um, the research is actually pretty compelling. Um, When we talk about read-alouds, we're all pretty familiar with um, the the data and the research that shows kids' linguistic benefits, um, how, how kids' language improves um, how their vocabulary, their syntax, their writing, all these things improve. But there's some pretty compelling new research that shows that um, read-alouds actually improve kids' physiological states. And the big takeaway for me um, as I was planning this book is research showing that 50 to 70% of teachers don't intentionally plan their read-alouds. And I was that teacher. When I was a middle school teacher, I read aloud every day to my kids. And my planning was how many pages I'd probably have the chance to cover in that allotted time. And I didn't go um, much deeper than that. And what we know is when we don't intentionally plan read-alouds, we miss instructional opportunities. Our language is um, more, uh, more surface level and more shallow. And the way that kids interact with the text isn't as rich and as deep as it could be were we to be more intentional in our
0: planning. Um, I'm going to be honest, you don't need to convert me and I'll tell you why. I'm going to tell you a story of a little girl I was watching read with Amira recently. She was reading a story about Thomas Edison, second grader, fluent reader, beautiful, just like absolutely perfect. And then Amira popped up with a question. The word genius had been in the story 3 times, and it a- and this and, and Amira asked her, "What does the word genius mean?" And the little girl said, "Picked a light bulb." That was the answer she picked. She had this word she could perfectly read, she didn't know what it meant, right? And so I'm 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 already convinced. But tell me in like sure, because I know your book has a lot of like nuance and information to it. But like when you say an intentionally planned read aloud is going to make it can make a big difference. What does that look like? And what are those things that need to be intentionally planned? Sure. So um w- the first thing that I do in
1: intentionally planning is I pre-reading, I evaluate the text. So what I do is I go through the text and look for those instructional opportunities as well as background knowledge and funds of knowledge that kids need to understand if they don't have it or if i don't intentionally do something to build it it potentially is a comprehension um, impediment and so when I am able to sort of identify those potential comprehension uh, stopping points, then I'm able to do a little pre-teaching to make sure that they've got the background knowledge or the funds of knowledge um, to make that read aloud more meaningful. Um, during the read aloud, I intentionally plan my um, my think alouds where um, you just spoke so nicely about um, a comprehension check for a kid. Another thing that I like to do is Um, metacognitive first-person narrative modeling of the thinking that I'm doing um, so that it's almost like I'm cracking open my head and modeling the internal thought processes that I, as a proficient teacher, proficient reader, am using. So I help kids show how to make meaning. And then my last thing of planning is really extending literacy opportunities behind uh, beyond the text. So um, what am I going to do to make meaning of the text, to build kids reading, writing, speaking, and listening, as well as how can I support kids cross-curricular understanding of the text and then build their socio-emotional
0: learning opportunities throughout the text. That's awesome. I love the modeling of the thinking. I think um, as someone who, I have three-year-old twins, it wasn't, I was a teacher, I taught kindergarten, I taught third grade, I taught all over, and it wasn't until I had my own children that I realized how much you have to explicitly teach people just even how to think, right? (laughs) So I think that's that's really valuable. Um, When I was a principal, I used to show this clip of um the this guy who won Jeopardy, like a bajillion times. and they asked him, like what was the key to his success? And he said, "I go to the library and read children's books. There's so much information in these books in such a digestible, easy to get way. Like this is how I've gotten it. And that was kind of like my pitch on picture books because I really love read alouds. But I'm curious, like you have the research, right? More than just a Jeopardy winner. Like, what, what is your pitch to educators about read-alouds matter, planning them matter? Like, what, what, are, you, what are you seeing in the, informa- in the research that you've done?
1: Well, so we know there's a little bit of a mismatch between the um, rich availability of texts and their ability to take really complicated topics and put them in kid-friendly language. Um, I was actually just reading a uh, kid's picture book about, um, about uh, radium. I mean, it's not something I understand, you know, isotopes and all those sorts of things. But just the way it was written was like, okay, this is a great would have been a great uh, use for me if I were going on to Jeopardy. Um, But unfortunately, what we know is that most teachers and again, I'm not sort of like teacher blaming, teacher shaming because I was one of these teachers, um, their text choices tend to be typically about 25 years old teachers tend to read from familiar texts that sort of evoke those warm fuzzy feelings that we had we think back to um, our uh, fourth grade teacher reading to us and so we don't always capitalize on the new um on the on new texts that offer a whole lot of diversity offer a whole Whole lot of um, topic and genre choice, um, so I think one of the things I hope that people take away from the book is that we also have to sort of push past what is con- considered the traditional read aloud. So when you say read aloud, lots of us go back to the they in their mind picture, you know, a kindergarten teacher on a rocking chair, kids all snuggled around her, him, or her on the floor. I really um, find lots of engaging opportunities for a middle school physical education teacher to read aloud or a eighth grade biology teacher or a sixth grade social studies teacher to read aloud in sort of instructional bursts. Maybe they're not, you know, the whole text, front cover to back cover. Um, Maybe they're not, you know, a full 15 minutes, but maybe you read aloud. If you're a gym teacher, you read aloud and you're starting um, a unit on volleyball. Maybe you read aloud from the International Volleyball Association, the rules. And um, if you're a seventh grade teacher, maybe you read from a speech or a um, eulogy of a particular leader that you read, if you're a biology teacher, or um, maybe you read aloud about global warming that's um, in headline news um, in newspapers all the time. So there's ways to do it in in way that, that push beyond what we
0: sort of in our minds have as the traditional read aloud. Um, I really love it. And you really are pushing my mind on a traditional read read aloud, which is really great. Um, I remember having uh, a, a social studies teacher t- read like first person letters and things like that. And what a difference it makes to like learn to listen to how someone reads that. And it's it's super valuable. I really appreciate that you brought up the diversity. Um, when I was working in a school, we did a, an audit. There was an audit that came out about picture books again um, and, and their diversity. And it was like a list of how many, what kind of, if you went through every picture book in the world, Or in the country, at least, um, like which characters were the most prevalent? And the first was little white boys. And the second was animals. It wasn't even little girls. It was the second most prevalent character to find in a picture book was animals. So I really appreciate that you're bringing up this new idea of diversity. Uh, Do you have any favorite new picture books or books that you would use to read aloud? So
1: I um, am always fond of books that tell sort of the untold story or the person, sort of the underdog or the person who sort of broke barriers in whatever their particular field was. One of my favorite books to read aloud is um, a picture book called The William Hoy Story. And it is about a deaf baseball player. I'm blanking on when he played, um, but he was a deaf baseball player. And the reason that if you go to, if you watch baseball live, or if you watch it on TV, you'll see hand signals, hand signals between the pitcher and the catcher, between the ump, um, between the batter and the coach. All of those are because of this deaf baseball player who needed a way to communicate. And I love that, like most kids are familiar with, they've seen it on TV or they've seen it in real life. And you say, do you know how you, how those came to be? Well, they actually came because of this deaf baseball player named William Hoy. And so the book talks about um, the creation of these, these signals. And I love that it showcases sort of an untold story of a character who is deaf and made a significant
0: contribution um, to something that we see every day in sports. Um, I, one, have never heard this story and I love it. And I, I don't know about you, but I always feel like I can picture those kids that were in my class who love to be the expert on something. So like my baseball expert would have loved that book and being the person who knew that. Um, your book is Pre-K Through Eight, which I think uh, you kind of mentioned this is somewhat surprising um, that like even in middle school, you recommend read aloud. I will say my experience in schools right now is teachers are overworked they are, it feels like they don't have enough time for anything, whether it's teaching or planning. And so I'm curious, you know, in that, how much time do you think should be dedicated to one, doing read aloud, reading aloud to children, and two, planning for your read aloud? Sure. So, um, as a
1: former classroom teacher and as somebody who is, um, constantly in schools and classrooms, I get it. I know, um, how full that plate is. Um, what I try to um, remind myself as I'm struggling to make time for something is that we prioritize, we find the t- time for the things that we prioritize. So if we prioritize building kids' background knowledge and language comprehension and vocabulary and all these hugely important components, then what better way to do it th- through the, than through a read aloud? Um, I also am reminded that most teachers enjoy the read aloud. It's one of their favorite parts of the day, and they wish they had more time for it. And we also know that when surveyed, kids in particular have really fond memories of reading aloud um, and, or I should say, of being read to. We also know that there's there's this tendency called the decline at nine, um, which shows that right around when kids turn nine, somewhere late third grade, early fourth grade, we see a decline um, in the frequency of read alouds both at school and at home and the reasons why well you know adults think kids don't need to be read to it's too babyish they can read on their own and what's even cooler about this um, research is that kids say no, no, no! I wish my parent kept reading to me. I wish my uh, my grown up, my adult, my teacher kept reading to me. So when I say that um, teachers love it, I'm also reminded that kids love it. And so I typically aim for somewhere about 10 to 15 minutes of um, a read aloud, and that does not have to be in one fell swoop. That can be the you know your social studies teacher reading aloud a letter or a journal. That can be um, you know then you. Take a really difficult part of the textbook, and you read aloud before you set kids off into independent reading. So it doesn't have to be, you know, all in one um, uninterrupted chunk. Um, and I typically, when I plan for my read alouds, to me, the things that I really have to identify I have to identify those that background knowledge. If my kids don't understand what is going on before reading the text, then they don't have that that mental Velcro um, to take new learning and to apply it to. And so that's going to be a huge instructional bang for my buck is just some of that front loading. Um, so I typically spend about five minutes or so really identifying the background knowledge. And if you're choosing a longer text, like a chapter book, chances are the, the, the background knowledge or the funds of knowledge remains the same throughout the text. Um, so yes, I'm totally aware that it takes time. But our students deserve to have that read aloud be as instructionally rich as possible and enjoyable for them and their teacher.
0: Um, I don't know where the words knowledge Velcro came from, but I love it. And I'm going to use it like all day long. Well, I think that's incredible, this idea of like, Go ahead. Yeah, um. it's it's actually I would love to take the credit
1: for it, but it's uh, Natalie Wexler, um, who many of us know as the author of um, the Knowledge Gap, and she writes how background knowledge is so such an important um, component of reading instruction. She actually wrote the foreword for this book.
0: Oh, great! I love it. I, you can just picture right like you give the kids the right information at the front load that they can stick to it. It's 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 incredible. Thank you for that, um, and thank you, Natalie Wexler. Um, let me let me ask you something. Um, do you have a feeling about rereads of, of read of alouds? Like, should, should what? See, there's a lot of perspectives around like, should teachers be rereading books if they need background knowledge? They need as much exposure as possible. What do you think about that? Yeah, so if, if it's a shorter
1: text, I'm all for the read aloud. We know that the more read aloud re, rereading that you do, um, the more kids retain vocabulary. The more you can dive into richer comprehension support. Um, you know, I, as a parent, I was very impatient with the read me this book for the 17th time. And I had to sort of remind <laughs> myself um, that, you know, no, this is an opportunity where I can draw my child in more as a learner and not just het, it be so, sort of a, a didactic read aloud. Um, obviously, for those longer books, I'm going to be really purposeful and just reread particular sections of the text that are really juicy or need a lot of unpacking or what have you. I'm impatient about rereading because there's
0: so many great books and so little time. Um, I, I feel the same way. However, I have read a few books in my house at least three thousand times, and it is fun to read it with my kids. So I, I get that. Um, I, something you said earlier: you said um, I, you're in classrooms a lot, and what I notice when I look at like the full library of books that you've written, because this is not your first book, is that they are seem very intentionally applicable for teachers. This is not like pie in the sky research. this is not this is like read this and you can improve your practice and help your kids more tomorrow. why Why is that your calling? And tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. so um, I consider myself a teacher of teachers. Um, the perspective that I always take um, is really two sorts of perspectives. First, um I started my career in education with Teach for America way back many moons ago i was in oakland california and had a very rapid fire five-week training um and didn't want a whole lot of theory and didn't want a whole lot of you know convoluted idea ideology i wanted like tell me what to do tomorrow um and then i spent uh Either sixteen or seventeen years—I can never remember—and that's that's uh, how old I'm getting. Um, I spent many many semesters as a university professor in a graduate traditional graduate program, preparing teachers um, and working with early career and pre-service teachers, and was very very well aware that they were actually many of them actually were Teach for America core members themselves. So it was a sort of nice kind of my my work had come full cycle. But I was always um, aware that they wanted like. Help me figure out tomorrow. It's Tuesday afternoon. It's the, you know, right before the holiday break mayhem. What am I going to do to capture my kid's attention? So um, I've always seen my work as translating the kind of ivory tower or think tank or research lab research to those who need it who are the teachers in classrooms and so um, i've worked really hard to make my writing and my um, my work in classrooms be practitioner friendly and um, honor teachers knowledge and realities as well as sort of supporting it with the research behind
0: um, our instructional decisions um, I, I really appreciate that. And I think most teachers do as well. <laughs> I, you're exactly right. It's like, what can I do tomorrow? And I think that's incredible. I want to ask you one more question about this concept of comprehension and knowledge and, and, all, and background knowledge and all this information. Um, because you and I met at the Reading League and at their conference. And if you had asked me to come up with like one theme of this year's Le- Reading League conference in October, I would have said comprehension is our next problem, right? Like we're closing the gap on fluency. We're closing it on phonics. But there is a background knowledge chasm coming our way, right? Would you agree with that? And is is do you think that that's right? That that, that that's what's coming next?
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree with it, and um, am mindful that comprehension is so complicated. Um, you know, it's there's a reason why Scott Paris in two thousand five wrote about constrained skills and unconstrained skills, constrained skills beating those word identification, you sort of have a have an agenda, there's a clear path, you know, when your kids have mastered their letter sounds versus the complications of unconstrained, I can learn a new vocabulary word every day and not reach the end of the dictionary, I can learn um, background knowledge until I'm blue in the face and never reach the end of, you know, Google or what have you. So it's a lot more complicated and nuanced. And I, I'm not convinced as well that we've really figured out the best measures for comprehension. Um, So that's another thing that we have to unpack. Um, But absolutely, I think it's the next frontier. And I hope um, that we have the patience and the stamina um, to really stick with it. Because this is one of those things where um, with regard to to word identification and fluency, we can see relatively quick gains but comprehension is going to be it's going to be more of a marathon. So I hope we have the resilience and the
0: patience to to sort of stick with it and stay the course. Um, it's interesting you say that I feel like stamina is exactly the right word, and it's the word that keeps coming up or or like the concept that keeps coming up for other people saying, like now that we have the science of reading research and and we're getting it into the hands of teachers, it is, so crucial that we stay the course do the work we know that we know this is going to work but we gotta we gotta stick with it and it's really hard for teachers who have kind of been swung all over the place depending on the year so I appreciate you bringing that up Um, I love talking about read alouds with you it's really fun and it's super validating as someone who loves read alouds but I would love to talk a little bit about you because you said multiple times now you were a teacher first and that you're a teacher of teachers now what did you teach I taught
1: sixth grade social studies, and it was called English language development in Oakland, California, um, as my start. Um, ELD at the time in California was uh, levels one through five, five being right before kids were mainstreamed into English-only classrooms. Um, And my kids, my first couple of years, were levels one and two, um, and there were probably about 14 languages in the classroom, Cambodian, Cantonese, Spanish, Arabic. Um, So I was really really, um, I was pretty overwhelmed. Um, and I'm so grateful for that experience because I did it thinking I was going to law school and this was sort of a resume builder or, or a, uh, stopping point. Um, and quickly realized that literacy, that, that that really education and literacy in particular were the social justice issue that mattered most to me. And so all of my work since that time and teaching s- since then has, um, really been about literacy equity and access.
0: That's incredible. I love that you were honest enough to say that like you went into Teach for America to think that you thinking you wanted to be a lawyer. Um, I think that's a lot of people. That's the path that they were planning on. So it's cool that you ended up where you have. How did you so you, you taught and then at what point did you decide, like, first of all, that this is your this is your area that you want us that you want to work on and two that that more school was next and, and getting a phd was sure. important to so, you
1: so um after my original teach for america placement i taught in la for a little bit and i um gosh i guess i was mid to latest 20s and kind of had a little bit of an identity crisis knew i loved reading knew i loved writing um, and actually applied for grad school in a bunch of different things i applied for um, programs in education i applied for programs in journalism um, i applied for programs in creative writing and um, ultimately just knew education was the thing for me so came back east i'm from the east coast originally i spent four years at the university of virginia and i um, my program was in reading education and i at the time was funded by Uh, Reading First. So this was under No Child Left Behind. Um, Reading First was, UVA was the center for Reading First for the state of Virginia. And so I was a research assistant. And so what we called back then scientifically based reading research, now we're calling the science of reading. So, um, you know, however many years ago, I guess I'm coming up on 20 years or so um, having been done from grad school. But these were the conversations I, you know, I read The Simple View in 19, from 1986 as a grad student in 2002. So to me, as exciting as this particular time on the literacy landscape is with so many people talking about reading, there's also a little part of me that's like, what took the rest of you so long? Like I've been thinking about this and talking about this for for nearly uh, you know going on three decades here. Um, so again, I think about that patience and that stamina and that motivation to to um, be in it for the long haul.
0: Well, I, I hear you about the taking you so long, but I also would say if it's, if there's ever been like a sign that you were in the right place, that might be it because I I know quite a few people who went to go get masters and PhDs at the same time in literacy education. And ended up with a balanced literacy education. True. True. Right. Like that's that's what you got. Yeah. And um, it was. It, and so I'm just
1: I'm just curious how it was a, actually really eye opening. I remember leaving UVA, and I was very grateful to um, have professors that like. I mean, I was reading Stanovich and you know all all the names back then, and then I came to New York to become a professor. And kind of having this, did, did I step back in time sort of feeling of I was seeing what was going on in schools and sort of being like, this is not, doesn't align or doesn't mesh with the way I was trained. And so it took a long time for me to sort of reconcile my training with um, the, 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 the climate. Um, and so it's been a really interesting to, to be involved in the New York C- City literacy conversations um,
0: for, for so many years and see these changes. You know, it's interesting because it, it feels like what you're saying about, did I go back in time? If you went to some university campuses right now, you'd have the same experience, right? Like this idea that the wave has has taken us all over on the beach and we're all swimming in the water of science of reading now is just not true. And so I'm curious, like, what would you say to some of these universities that are kind of taking their time to make the move or to teachers who are trying to figure out what to do next or who are still, you know, like there are. Districts who still have six years con- of contracts left with their balanced literacy curriculum. And I'm just curious, what are your thoughts there? Well,
1: I think um, we have hard decisions to make. And do we let the kids in the pipeline, um, let the teachers in the pipeline suffer, get poorly trained, um, not get access to best practices because of contracts or because? We are sort of comfortable in teaching our courses the way that we've always taught them. Um, big changes need are scary, but our kids need us to do more, and we all pay the price for what happens with regard to ineffective reading instruction, all, all of us. It, it Not only does it hurt our society, but we pay the price in terms of, you know, reliance on assistance and public health and our global um, economy. And there's just so many reasons why we have to really have meaningful conversations about do the practices that we are incorporating in our teacher preparation, as well as our um, many times districts, um, are they aligned with science? And this is where we, we have to we have to sort of be brave and accept the uh, the the great challenge and the great uh, privilege that we have um, been given as teachers and as educators, and do what's right for children. And it's going to take some of us having some um, kind of reconciling with. Wow, I wish I had done differently. And that is, um, I'm also really grateful for the people who are leading these th- these these thought leaders and the people who are who are kind of f- forging the path ahead are reminding us of the words of Maya Angelou, who says, when you know better, you do better. Um, Because I think we all look at some of the things that we used to do as teachers and say, man, I I was well-intentioned, but I didn't know. I certainly have some of those things when I think back to my first year of of teaching. Um, So I'm grateful that the climate is one that is accepting of wherever people are on their learning curves. And uh, I would, I would say to people, um, hurry up and and join us. We're all waiting for you.
0: And we're um, ready with open arms. Oh, you sound like Kareem Weaver. That sounds like him ready with open arms. Um, okay. Let me ask you this. We have a lot of listeners who are educators. Um, if you were talking to them and they were looking at a master's program or a program in literacy education, and they wanted to know if it was science of reading a line, Because a lot of things say science of reading on them. What would you tell them to look for? So I look for
1: um, the course texts that they're using. Um, I look for um, the professors who are teaching the courses and what their particular uh, contributions to the science are. Because I want people who are um, not just turnkeying information, but also producing information um, in the science of reading. So I want to make sure that people are Paying their hard-earned tuition dollars um, towards people who are thought leaders in um, in science and research. Um, I also look for what professional associations they're affiliated with. Um, are they? You know, doing work with the Reading League—are they um, attending professional conferences? Those sorts of things. Um, so I do think um, there there is some some really important transparency that once you start digging, you can um, you can find out a lot more. And we're also at a point where, regardless of where people live, um, convenience should not just be the, the the deciding factor in where people pursue their coursework because there are so many options. There are so many. Um, you know, open access things that if you, you know, can't afford, um, a particular course, you can still learn information. And, um, we're just at a really exciting time where the learning is readily accessible, um, at people's, you know, after school hours or summer vacations or what have you. So, um, there's, there's so much out there. It can actually be a little bit, um, overwhelming which way to look.
0: Yeah. I think we hear that a lot. Let me ask you this. I heard you kind of mention, you know, like that you've kind of been with New York for a long time, trying seeing, seeing their different transitions. And I heard you mention that it feels like we've, we've changed, right? Like we've turned a corner finally. What did that look like for you? How did you know we'd turn the corner? So,
1: um, I think for me, one of the biggest corner changing events was, um, when I was invited to the New York city mayor's literacy advisory council, Um, For the last two years, there has been a um, a council of thought leaders, experts, um, interested parties, stakeholders um, coming together to help redirect the city, which has a long history of balanced literacy, um, and say, move us in a direction, point the needle somewhere else quickly. And the the process was... um, There were some frustrations. It was um, a little bit challenging at times, but the um, the clarity on what the outcomes were meant to be and the full steam ahead sort of um, urgency of it was really to me important because this was not going to be one of those you're going to sit on this committee for five to eight years and nothing's going to change. And um, you know, yes, there had been problems in rollout, but I do applaud the efforts for um, saying. You know what? Our kids right now—we we we, we do not have any time to waste. Um, so that to me was a really uh, a, a powerful reminder of wow, things are really really starting to change here. And when was that? It was I guess let's see, fall of twenty twenty two. So I um, was probably asked spring of twenty twenty two, and the work still goes on. Um, I will say that that. Um, I live outside of the city and um, New York City and I actually think upstate New York are sort of making more progress in the science of reading than my home um, community and my uh, where where um, I, I the areas where I live. So it's been really interesting to watch these huge districts um, change direction, um, kind of with more speed than some of the smaller ones. And I'm not I don't know why that has been that way. Um, it's another interesting thing to think through.
0: Yeah, I, I think we're. It's interesting being, you know, where I am, where I get to see lots of different districts all of the time, doing in different places in implementation and implementation, and the the things they come up against is very different. I, and I think that we forget how unique um, school districts can be. Um, I, it's so interesting because I, I think New York, in my opinion, has got to be one of the hardest places to make big, swifting changes. One because Columbia Teachers College is there, right, and they led the balanced literacy movement and that, and there was such a stronghold on the city there. And then two um, it's a, it's a big, (laughs) you know, when I go to schools in New York and I go visit them, every school is like its own Island. Right. So it it is somewhat inspiring to hear the changes they're making and how hard in a place that I think would be hard to change. And we're also one of the only States that
1: really one of the few States that has no state legislation. Um, You look at where we are at the national level and New York is behind. Um, and I feel very frustrated by that. and I am very grateful for um the people who are advocating
0: for state reform and legislative um, work. Yeah, we've seen some big things out of like ohio and and some other places this year. so I, I think that's great that you mentioned that. Um it's interesting so you, that I, I noticed something that you said. You said, you know, at one point you 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 were looking at what people were doing, and it felt like you were going back in time, right? Like it was like, hey, we've been doing this for thirty years. And then at the same time, you have all this hope around New York City. And when you told me 2022, that feels like yesterday. I was like, oh, my gosh, that was so late to the party. So when you think about the fact that, like, in many ways, a lot of your work is where people are late to the party. What gives you hope? What inspires you? What really excites you about where we are right now and where we're going? So what
1: gives me hope and what inspires me is how many people are coming to the table for this conversation. It's not just... Teachers, it's not just those vocal boat rockers, and I say that, me being a vocal boat rocker, it is um, people from all different fields. It is people in the medical field, it's our, um, you know, people who study public health. It's so many people coming to the field to say literacy matters so much on not only the outcome of an individual child but our communities and our larger society. So I am super excited by um, how sort of interdisciplinary the conversations that were really once siloed to um, to those who lived in public education. So that gives me um, great hope. Um, And um, I am super excited that I found my reading geeks that like are just as dorky as I am about the science and science. want to talk about the brain and look at um, conference proceedings and are like, oh my gosh, there's so many places I want to be at the same time because I want to just soak it all in. Um, So I'm really um, grateful that I have found my community of um, reading researchers and thought leaders and people who I think are making just such important um, contributions to helping kids
0: be confident, habitual, lifelong readers. Um, I'm, I'm so grateful that like, you've kind of shown exactly who you are, which is so lovely. Like this person who loves research, loves the data, loves the stuff around the brain science, but cares the most about it getting to teachers. Like that's what I see in your work and what I see in this conversation. I can't tell you how much it means to me and probably every other educator. Um, we're, we are getting close to the end of time. That was a really lovely way to go. So we're going to go ahead and move to our five questions. We ask everybody, are you ready? Okay. So the first question is, um, Everyone hears the title More Than a Test and thinks it means something different. And so I'm curious, when you heard that our podcast is called More Than a Test, what did you think about?
1: Um, I thought about how much of what we do with regard to reading is based on standardized tests. And so um, I thought about it being um, a more holistic um, approach to that, just the standardized testing approach.
0: Yeah, I, the one question that you said today that I'm going to like sit with for a while is, you know, are we measuring comprehension correctly and background knowledge correctly? And I think, I th- I don't think anyone has an answer right now, but I think it's a great question. So it, 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 it makes sense that that's what you thought of. Um, okay, so tell us a, about a lit moment in your life. And what we mean by a lit moment is a moment of you and a book that is either like your happy place or it changed you or just really important. So a time that you were with a book that was really important um, to you. So a book that um, was really, uh,
1: one of those moments was um, the early grade reader, are you my mother? Um, and I will never forget, um, this moment I was teaching. I was still a university professor. My daughter was a kindergartner. She was a kindergartner in a balanced literacy school and had a teacher who closed the door and gave her foundations and gave her explicit phonics and all these other things. And I, um, remember teaching a course, um, coming home that night and my daughter, um, reading to me, Are You My Mother? And it was the first realization she was, this was January of her kindergarten year. Um, And so it was the first realization of, I have a reader at home, and the power of um, explicit instruction. That teacher um, was kind of a rebel and gave kids what she knew um, they needed. And she's still a teacher in my district. We're still friends, and I am forever grateful for um, her creation in my home of, of a reader.
0: Thank God for all the rebel teachers out there, right? Um, all right, a piece of technology you love. A piece of technology that I love is a good old school planner.
1: Um, I have adopted the Google Calendar, like I, I, that was my 2023 resolution to get on the, the digital calendar, but I'm still the crazy person who every night before I go to bed or first thing in the morning with my cup of coffee takes my calendar and then writes it into an old school planner to remind me of what my day is going to look like. So um, give me an old fashioned like planner and um, I'm in a happy place. What, what planner do you use? I feel like this is such a teacher answer. Teachers love know, their planner. And you know, I, um, there's a, a really funny meme about like somebody who, you know, this is the year that I found the planner that is going to totally organize my life. Um, I don't have one that I am just is has to be the one um, I right now like ones by call ink and volt. They're kind of minimalist and very um bare, but I need a day by day thing because I need a place for all right, what are my errands that I have to do for like my house and my kid and what's my work stuff and what's like am I going to eat today? Am I going to exercise? So I need like multiple um places to record all that stuff.
0: I love it. All right. Um best advice you've ever been given. Oh
1: man, best advice I've ever been given. Um, Enjoy, enjoy. My great-grandmother. I um, had your sort of stereotypical great-grandmother who was, she's probably four foot nine. She had no filter, very, very sort of thick Jewish accent, you know, would like cook the matzo ball soup for you in the middle of August when it was 103 degrees out. And she signed every single letter, sent every single goodbye with enjoy, enjoy. And by that, she just meant enjoy life, enjoy the people around you, enjoy what you do, um, enjoy who you are. Um, and many, many people in my family, and she was by far the matriarch of um, of our family. Uh, everybody sort of has a, a, a personal story about something she said to them that was like jaw-dropping, like, you can't say that. Um, But now all of us sort of have adopted the enjoy, enjoy as our um, signatures to our emails or letters or what have you. I love it. All right, and a book you think everyone should read. A Book I think everyone should read, um, and other than my own, obviously, um, I actually think that everyone should read Marianne Wolf's. Um, I'm blanking. Reader, come home. So um, many of us know Marianne Wolf as a reading researcher, um, and she started this book. It used to, I think, in its original format, it was a. a, a an op-ed or a short piece of writing. And she writes about how she as an adult wanted to recreate the experience that she had as a child where she was reading her favorite book. And I believe the book was a tree grows in Brooklyn, which was a really um, powerful book for me. And as an adult, she wanted to go back and read that book and recreate the feeling of being in the zone, meaning blocking out everything else, being so just, deeply um, immersed in this book that you've, you know, hours pass and you're you're not even aware. And she said she couldn't do it. And she was so frustrated. She said her attention was everywhere. Her focus was minimal and she was really frustrated about it. And so she dug into the science and she, the book explores how living in a digital world has shortened our attention span. And she basically says, If you are struggling to focus, if you're struggling to read, you're not crazy. And for me, it was really validating because I was like, ah, I totally feel this. Um, The good news is she says that with, you know, up to two weeks of really concerted, explicit focus on just turning on your notifications and disabling everything um, that you can really get back to that point where you're just lost in a book. So it's kind of a, um, a, a look at the brain and, and the impact of technology and a digital world on reading. So I just think it's a lovely book that sort of intertwines personal narrative of her reading life
0: along with brain science. Um, I haven't read it, but I will. I've read tons by her, but this sounds amazing and so important. I will tell you that someone once told me to put my phone charger in one place in my house and that that would be a game. And it has it has totally changed my life and that my phone kind of hangs out there and i can go other places and do other things and i think that has made a really big difference in my ability to get back to reading so thank you for bringing that up thank you for marianne wolf for writing it and thanks for being here today this has been a really great time thanks for joining us on the more than a test podcast if you found this conversation valuable subscribe to our youtube channel and find us on your favorite podcast platform At Amira Learning, we believe every child deserves a chance to become a reader, and we're excited to be part of this conversation. See you next week, and thanks for joining.